0: Talk Radio.
1: And now, shining the light of Biblical truth,
0: this is Truth Be Told Radio, with your host, Melissa Kanchola.
1: Thanks for listening to me, Melissa Kanchola here on Truth Be Told Radio, and we're going to get started with... Dr. Vodi, welcome. And this is called. What do you? Oh, sorry. What? Who do you think you are here on you Total Radio?
2: So as we continue our journey in Romans, we are right in the middle of chapter nine, looking at verses nineteen through twenty-nine today. So, if you have your Bibles, please open them there to Romans chapter nine, verses nineteen through. This passage is not unique in that It contains another question that Paul asks But it is unique in that Unlike the other instances in Romans Where Paul raises the questions of his opponents Here he does not give an answer Everywhere else, the question is raised, Paul answers the question, oftentimes he answers the question, then explains his answer, and then reiterates his answer. Here, the question is raised, and Paul does not answer the question. In fact, he answers the question with a question, and the question that he asks in return is basically, who do you think you are? Sometimes that is a very appropriate response to certain kinds of questions. Who do you think you are? Join me in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, or who do you think you are, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, notice that these are all questions, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who has not believed, uh, 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 I'm sorry, her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Now, he has already answered the question numerous times in Romans, but here, he doesn't answer directly this question. A couple of things I'd like for us to observe before we delve more deeply into this passage. Listen to this observation from Charles Hodge in his commentary on Romans. There would be no room either for this objection or for that contained in the 14th verse, if Paul had merely said that God chooses those whom he foresees would repent and believe, or that the ground of distinction was in the different conduct of men. It is very evident, therefore, that he taught no such doctrine. How easy and obvious an answer to the charge of injustice would it have been to say God chooses one and rejects another according to their works. But, teaching as he does the sovereignty of God in the selection of the subjects of his grace and of the objects of his wrath, declaring as he does so plainly that the destiny of men is determined by his sovereign pleasure, the objection, how can he yet find thought, fault, is plausible and natural. Follow what Charles Hodge is saying here. There are people out there who argue that the Apostle Paul teaches that God elects people based on his foreknowing who will choose him. That he looks down the corridor of time and determines who is going to believe and who is not going to believe, and then elects people based on that kind of foreknowledge. If that's what Paul was teaching, this question and the question in verse 14, would never and could never have been raised. But the fact that these questions are being raised with the Apostle Paul is evidence of the fact that Paul teaches that God is sovereign in election and it has absolutely nothing to do with man. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he hardens whom he will harden. Doctrine of election and reprobation has been clear here. Remember, reprobation is the idea of God passing over some and electing others. It is not as though God has to make people sinful. Man is born in sin. Every human being on planet Earth born with a sinful nature, which, by the way, we've said this before and I'll probably say it again, This is why the virgin birth is not something that we can give up on. Because it is the virgin birth that separates Christ from original sin. So those out there who argue, well, it doesn't really matter, all of the technical stuff, as long as you just believe in Jesus, no. If you believe that Jesus was not virgin-born, then you believe that Jesus had a sin nature. And if you believe that Jesus had a sin nature... In sin, man is shaped in iniquity, and the doctrine of reprobation is simply this: God passes over some and elects others for salvation. And our question ought not be, "How dare God save some and not others?" A question ought instead to be. Why would God save any of us? But the reason we don't ask that question is because we think too much of ourselves, and that's right where Paul goes. Who do you think you are? And the answer is we think we're the center of the universe. That's the answer. Listen to this from James Montgomery Voice. He puts an even finer point on the matter. But now the wicked resourcefulness of the human heart comes in. For if a person cannot deny God's sovereignty over human affairs and human destinies, or even God's right to save some and pass over others, as God does, the person will at last try to deny his or her own responsibility in the matter. If I can't get at this angle and attack the sovereignty of God, if I cannot attack God's right to pass over some and to save others, and I have to acknowledge God's sovereignty, then the next way for me to alleviate this pressure that is upon me, because I don't want to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, the next way for me to alleviate that pressure is to question God's justice and to question my own responsibility or accountability for my sin. And therein lies this question that Paul faces and that you and I will face as we talk to people about the doctrines of grace. If you talk to people about the doctrine of God's sovereign electing grace, this question is going to arise. But here's the pressure that you feel when the question arises. The question, the pressure that you feel is to defend God. Can't say amen, y'all to say ouch. Because people are basically saying that God's a big meanie and he's not fair. And we feel like we have to defend God. So we go round and round and round trying to defend God so that God doesn't look to them as a big meanie. Whereas Paul looks him square in the face and says, who do you think you are? Well, I could never do that Why? Well, I could never do that Because the person wouldn't be satisfied With that response And the Lord knows I live for the satisfaction of other people So I could never say that because if I said that, then the person might harden their heart, and God might not be able to save them. Let me see if I can get this straight. If you are pressing the point of God's sovereign election and salvation, and somebody gets offended by you pressing the point of God's sovereign election and salvation, then you're afraid that somehow God won't be able to sovereignly elect them because you offended them. That dog won't hunt. Paul's response is important, and he is not merely trying to be offensive. Let's examine his response more carefully. His response is all about contrast. The verse contrast. you are man and not God. Newsflash, listen with me if you will, there in verse 19. You will say to me then, who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, in the Greek, this is even more poignant because in the Greek, there is a definite article here. And so basically he's saying, who are you, man, to answer back to not just God, but the God? You are a man. He is the God. There is but one God, and he's not you. Who are you to answer back to God? Don't move past that too quickly. Because here's part of our problem with the sovereignty of God and election. Part of our problem with the sovereignty of God and election is that we think too much of ourselves. I would say we think too much of mankind, but that's really not the case. I don't think too much of mankind. I just think too much of me. I think more of myself Than I do of anyone else And it's really not a problem for me That God has not explained himself to you It's a problem That he hasn't explained himself to me Can I get a witness? The problem is I think too much of me And I think God owes it to me To explain himself at every step And even beyond that I think God owes it to me to explain to my satisfaction at every step what it is that he does. And even beyond that, I think God owes it to me to explain to my satisfaction everything that he does. And if I don't like it, it's incumbent upon him to fix it so that I do. That's what I think of me. And more correctly, that's how little I think of God. That's what you think of you. And that's how little you think of God. You know, our problem with the doctrine of election is not that Romans 9 is unclear. It's that we think it unkind. Our problem with the doctrine of election. It's not that Romans 9 is somehow confusing or cloudy. The problem is it's not what you would do. That's our problem. And that is why Paul goes to the heart of the issue in asking, in essence, who do you think you are? You are a man. He is the God of the universe. There is a distance between you that is unfathomable. He is independent and unmade. You are created. God is immutable, and you are ever-changing. God is eternal, and you are temporal. God is omnipotent, and you are frail and weak. God is omnipresent. You are finite. God is holy and you are sinful, and you dare question God, who do you think you are? The psalmist writes in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Again, Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all The So again, who do you think you are? You You don't even like this. Some of you are uncomfortable because I keep asking you that question. Because you just think that that's just not the way that someone ought to respond. You just think that maybe it's not pastoral. Maybe it's not godly to get in someone's face and say, who do you think you are when they question God? The only way that that's not godly is if it's not something that God himself would condone or if it's not something that God himself would do. Go to Job 38 with me for a moment, please. Job's had some difficulties, shall we say, in his life. He and his friends are trying to figure things out theologically. Job comes to a place where he forgets himself, questions God. And in Job 38, not only in Job 38, but in Job 38, God begins to respond. Let's listen to how this loving God responds to being challenged and questioned by finite man. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel, by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or... Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when it made clouds its garment and fit darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It's changed like clay under the sea, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And he continues and continues and continues and continues, and in essence, he looks Job in the face and says Who do you think You are? I'm God I answer to no one And if this answer bothers You, hear me when I say You think too much Of yourself If this answer Bothers you, hear me When I say you do not Reverence and worship the God of the universe, the way you ought to. If this answer does not suffice for you, be afraid. Be very afraid because you dare challenge the God of the universe, and he will not share his glory with another, and he will not have his decrees challenged by those who borrow the very breath that they use to speak to him. He is God, and you are not. That's his first response. Secondly, you are creature, not creator. You are creature, not creator. Look as he continues in Romans 9. What does Moses say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? What does molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? God created you. You did not create God. God is not a figment of your imagination. God is the one who created the world, and he's the one who created you. So first of all, he's God, and you're not. Secondly, he created you and not the other way around. Think about this before you go questioning God. Think about this before you lay charge against God because something doesn't agree with you or doesn't sit right with you. God created you. That means first that you exist for God's purposes. You exist for God's purposes. You do not exist at your own pleasure. You do not exist for your own purposes, nor do you get to determine the purpose for which you exist. God has determined the purpose for which you exist. And the shorthand answer is the purpose for which you exist is the glory of God, however he chooses to glorify himself in and with and through your life. Therefore, you owe God worship and obedience. You owe God worship and obedience. Nothing else makes sense. From the perspective of the creature Toward the creator Is this not the problem That Paul identifies in Romans chapter 1 Look with me in Romans chapter 1 Beginning in verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed From heaven against all ungodliness And unrighteousness of men Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known About God is plain to them Because God has shown it to them And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They worship the creature rather than the creator. But note his statement. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I don't like the sovereignty of God. My wisdom as a finite created being is not satisfied with the way that God has decided to save some and not save others. Therefore, in my finite created state, I will come before God Almighty because I deem myself to be wise, and I will demand that he answer to me. You fool. Thinking yourself to be wise, you have become the epitome of, of a fool. God is the creator of the universe. Bow down before him. Worship him. That is what he deserves. That is what you owe to him. Obey him because he made you. You exist for his purposes. Worship God.
3: Obey God.
2: Don't question God. If you do have questions for God, they had better be questions that are designed for you to be better equipped to worship God the way he deserves to be worshipped. Questions like, what would you have me to do, God? How would you have me to worship you, oh God? How may I know you better, God? Those are our questions. Here I am, God. Explain yourself to me so that I can determine whether or not you are worthy of my worship and obedience. That's the wrong answer. Salvation is a gift, not a reward. It's a gift, not a reward. You question God because you think he owes you your salvation. Salvation is a gift. You did not earn it. If Paul has said anything up to this point in the book of Romans, he has said that again and again and again and again and again. You are fallen, you are broken, you are sinful, you are alienated from God, and God has saved you. God has adopted you. God has called you his own. God has wrapped his saving and loving arms around you, and he has pulled you to himself, and you have the audacity to question him. It's the height of ingratitude. It's the height of ingratitude. Listen. To the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. Just one just next to Romans chapter nine. If you just want to bathe in, in election and predestination, just read Daniel chapter four and the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar. God called his shot long before he takes it. Here's what I'm going to do to you. And then here's what's going to happen afterwards. Here's how long it's going to take. Verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, what a statement. Which days? The days that God, through Daniel, told Nebuchadnezzar he was going to experience. Seven years, he's going to live as a wild beast, and he did. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And notice what he said, my reason returned to me. You think you're so smart. I'll take your mind from you. Do you know who I am? I'll take your reason, which is finite to begin with, for seven years. Then I'll give you your thinking back, and we'll see what happens. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? Pre-tip Nebuchadnezzar, who do you think you are? Really, who do you think you are? I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask questions, but what kind of question are you asking, and what is your motivation? Thirdly, you're the clay and not the potter. Paul points out that you're the clay and not the potter. In Romans 9, back in verse 21, he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is not just a great illustration, but this would have been a familiar illustration. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 15 and 16. Ah, you who hide, excuse me, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me? For the thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Again, Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. And again, in Jeremiah eighteen three 3-6. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled In the potter's hand And he reworked it into another vessel As it seemed good to the potter to do Then the word of the Lord Came to me O house of Israel Can I not do with you As this potter has done Declared the Lord Behold like the clay in the potter's hand So are you in my hand O house of Israel They remember the prophets God is the potter and we are the clay. This goes beyond just God has created you. This is God can continue to shape and mold you like the potter can continue to shape and mold the clay. Our attitude for God is not God made me and then he gave me my life so that I could do with it as I please. No, you know, the idea here is that God not only made you, he is making you. You not only exist because of God, you exist for God. You not only came into being because of God, you continue being because of God. This is the God whom we serve. He is the potter, and we are the clay. So what does this mean? He draws these distinctions. Here's what we take from it. Your knowledge is limited to what God has revealed. Your knowledge is limited to what God has revealed. Know that. Be aware of that, that that keeps us in our place. Do you know and understand everything that God has done? No, you don't. Your knowledge is limited to what God has revealed. And even, you can even put a finer point than that. Your knowledge is limited to your ability to comprehend what God has revealed. Amen? You don't even understand all of God's revelation. In fact, you prove that to yourself. Anyone who has read and reread any portion of the Bible has already proven this to himself. You read the Bible, and then you come back and you read it again, and what happens? You see things that you didn't see the first time. And guess what will happen next year if you read it again? You'll see things that you didn't see this time. And what's that going to remind you of? You do not have complete knowledge even of what God has already revealed. Your knowledge is limited to what God has revealed, deep to your ability to comprehend what God has revealed, which is finite, number one, and secondly, dependent upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that brings God's truth to your mind. That is why lost people can read this same Bible and miss God altogether. It is the grace of God that allows you to understand. So before you gird up your loins and stand before God and shake your finger in his face because you don't understand him, remember, you don't understand him. And knowledge is limited. Listen to this, Arthur Pink, in The Sovereignty of God that this branch of the subject of God's sovereignty is profoundly mysterious, we freely allow. Yet that is no reason why we should reject it. The trouble is that nowadays there are so many who receive the testimony of God only so far as they can satisfactorily account for all the reasons and grounds of his conduct, which means they will accept nothing but that which can be measured in the petty scales of their own limited capacity. Going to allow of God that which I and my finite mind can comprehend. And if God dares go beyond my finite mind, he must answer it to me.
4: Who do you think you are?
2: Here's what Paul does. He makes this point, and then he, he illustrates this point. First of all, if you go back to Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, what you see is Paul gives us a brief salvation history. Look at verses 3 through 5. For I can wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. Paul just gave a brief synopsis of salvation history. Don't don't, don't miss that, okay? That is just a brief synopsis of the history of Israel, of salvation history. It's great that they have salvation history. Now, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 9 to explain what should have been caught through salvation history, and that is God's sovereignty and election. First, in verses 10 through 13, he goes through the patriarchs. Now, that would be found in Genesis. So the story of Jacob and Esau is in Genesis. So he uses the patriarchs in Genesis in order to explain the doctrine of election. You should have understood the doctrine of election because you know Genesis. Well, then in verses 17 through 18, he points to Pharaoh, whom we find where? In Exodus. So he says, you should have known the doctrine of election and salvation and sovereignty of God and salvation through not only Genesis but also through Exodus. Now, in Romans 9:24 to 27, he points to the words of Hosea and to the words of Isaiah. So now he says, not only the law, but also the prophets. You catch that? Paul's making an argument for the doctrine of election and predestination. And first he says, salvation history of Israel ought to demonstrate that to you. Then he says, Genesis and the patriarchs also have proven that for you. Then he says, Exodus and Pharaoh and the crossing of the Red Sea should have demonstrated that for you. And then he says, also, the clear teaching of the prophets should have demonstrated that for you. In other words, Paul doesn't answer the question. He merely points to the fact that the question has already been answered. Here's the beauty. And this is why it's doubly sad for us. Paul says, you should have known because you read your Old Testament. These people didn't have a New Testament. Now you and I come in, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we still can't figure this thing out because we think too much of ourselves. You see, it's been said that, you know, in the Old Testament, is like a dark room filled with furniture. In the New Testament, the furniture doesn't move. The lights just come on. Amen. And Paul is saying to the people who had nothing but the dark room and all the furniture, you should have been able to figure this out. And yet, you and I, who have all the lights on, are still trying to figure out why the sofa's right there. Not because we don't see the sofa. Because we'd like for it to be somewhere else. Who do you think you are? And so, go to these Old Testament passages. This statement here in Hosea those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Isn't that great? Paul says, He should have understood and not been surprised that God brought in Gentiles. The very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. By the way. What is he going back to? His argument earlier on in chapter 9. His whole argument in chapter 9, people are saying, has God forgotten Israel? Isaiah says there's only going to be a remnant of national Israel who's going to be saved. Where have you been? Where have you been? Not everyone who is born of this stock is going to be saved. God has made that clear. God has also made it clear that there's some outsiders who are going to come in. Where have you been? This is not a new teaching. This is not a new message. This is the message of redemptive history. It's not hidden. Therefore, your best and only hope is to repent and believe what God has revealed. That's your best and only hope, to repent and believe what God has revealed. But I don't understand this Okay Are you trusting What you do understand Are you obeying What you do understand Have you done that Have you Or Are you so caught up With The finer Technicalities That that which is Obvious and before your eyes is being neglected? Are you so caught up with the hows and where to of election and predestination that your ears have been dulled to repent and believe? Is that the case? Are you so worried about whether or not God has overstepped his bounds that you are no longer fearful before him because you've overstepped yours? Are you so caught up with the minutiae that you miss the neon sign that says, bow the knee before God? Do you realize who it is that you're dealing with? Do you realize that this one whom you question is not only sustaining you, but that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and that there will be no Q&A time? When he shows up with fire in his eyes and a sword on his thigh, you will ask him nothing. You will merely bow. And if you have not done business with him by then, you will merely beg for time that no longer exists for you and for a chance that has passed for you because you did not bow the knee when the opportunity was yours. Instead, you questioned God because your finite mind didn't like or understand some Minor aspect of how he chose to save his people. Who do you think you are? Am I saying there's no place for questions? No, oh, it's not what I'm saying. But Paul's not saying that either. He's answered question after question after question. He has explained the doctrine. But at this point, he gets to the heart, not of the question, but of the questioner. What I'm saying to you today is we've answered this again and again and again. We've answered this. What I'm saying to you today is do you keep asking questions because you can't understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you desperately need to bow the knee and repent, or are you asking questions because you wonder whether or not this God who saved you is worthy of your worship? question because you desire to worship God in the fullness of his majesty and know him more do you have a question because you think he owes it to you to explain himself do you have a question Are you confused? Or do you have a question because you're arrogant? Which one is it? Are you one of those people who just likes to sit up and ask theological questions because you like the sound of your own voice asking theological questions? Or are you a worshiper of the one true and living God, who is in passionate pursuit of the one whom you love and whom you serve, and you want to love him more deeply and serve him more passionately? Which one is it? Do you recognize that he is God and you are man? Do you recognize that he's creator and you're a creature? Do you recognize that he is potter and you are clay? questions born out of that recognition or have you gotten things twisted have you forgotten your place have you forgotten the fear of God I don't know about you I don't want God coming to me like he came to Job My desire is to always come before God with a bowed head and a humble heart, recognizing who he is and the reverence and the honor that is due to him, that is owed to him, bowing before God and recognizing that he killed his son for my sin. That changes what you ask. God. And it changes the way you ask God. You come before God in humility saying, God, I don't understand how the spotless sinless Lamb of God can be crucified for my sin. I do not comprehend how you can love me and save me and redeem me and receive me as your own. I do not understand how you can forsake you're only an eternally begotten son, merely so that you can call me your son. I don't understand that. Explain it, please. Or do you stand before God, whose hands, figures, and speaking, are red with the blood of his own son, who he has crushed and killed for you, and dare ask him to explain why some are saved and others are not? How dare you? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Who do you think God is? Do you not know that our God is a consuming fire? Do you not know that your righteousness is the filthy rags in his sight? Do you not know that it was his mercy that woke you up this morning because his justice would have demanded your death last night? I'm not saying you can't ask questions. Just don't forget your place in the process. And if you are you today, and you have never bowed the knee to this great God, and yet you think one day you will face him on your own merit. I ask again, who do you think you are? Yes, his son had to be crushed and killed for others. But you have enough merit in yourself to stand before him. No. Run to Christ. Run to him. Plead for mercy. Beg for forgiveness. Turn from your sin, stop trusting yourself, trust only in God, and come with a heart that is all at the same time terrified of the one to whom you are running, but recognizing that he is your only hope so you press on beyond the fear. He is willing to save. Just come to him. and humility but come
1: Sorry for the
4: inconvenience. to play a file. Okay, here we go. God and Suffering. This is Ken Ham, author of The Divine Dilemma, wrestling with the question of a loving God in a foreign world. How can we answer someone who's hurting who asks, why would a good God create death and suffering? Well, in Genesis, we read that God created everything very good. There was no pain, suffering, death, or disease, but the first two people God made chose to disobey Him, and the penalty for sin is death. That choice brought death and suffering into creation. Because of their sin and our sin since then, the world groans in pain. But there's more. God's Son, Jesus, took our penalty, death, upon Himself when He died on the cross. Then He rose from the dead conquering death, and offers eternal life to all who believe.
0: Sign up for weekly email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You can also view a transcript of this program at AnswersRadio.com. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name. That's how Joel Esteen begins every sermon. So let's go back through this and break it down. This is my Bible. Yeah, which he never opens and reads from, but I digress. We'll come back to that. I am what it says I am. And what it says you are is a sinner, an enemy of God, spiritually dead. The only person that can give you life and repair the relationship between you and God is Jesus Christ. So as long as you understand that, we're on the right track. I
4: have what it says I have?
0: If you have Christ, you have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, peace with God. If not, you're still under his wrath. I can do what it says I can do. Correct. And the only thing you can do is sin, unless the Holy Spirit is in you, and then you can please God. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. Meditate on it day and night, Psalm 1. But unless the Spirit has changed you to receive it, you can't understand it, for the natural person can't Spiritual things. I boldly confess my mind is alert. Now we're getting wonky. I boldly confess I have a million bucks. That doesn't make it true. My heart is receptive. Again, only the Spirit can do that, not your declaration. I will never be the same. And again, only if Christ has changed you. In Jesus' name. Selfishly using God's name is taking it in vain, also known as blasphemy. So about that first declaration. This is my Bible. And you should read it. You don't declare anything over the Bible. The Bible declares authority over you when we understand the text.
3: Imagine you're thinking to yourself, if I just marry this woman, Mm -hmm. if I can just head to the altar with that man, then I know I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Congratulations, you are going to be massively disappointed. Paul Tripp, asking a rather profound question that so many of us, myself included, overlook, what did I expect? Back to when I got married. From a Paul trip, love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of your husband or wife without impatience or anger. What is the point of marriage? It is not to be served. It is to serve. Hey, anybody else thinking about Philippians 2 right now? Jesus Christ, he did not come to be served. He came to be a servant to the point of laying down his life. Hmm. Does that sound like your marriage? Love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward your spouse while looking for ways to encourage and praise. We are to give praise to others we are to be encouraging others we are to be lifting up others if your expectation was a big old 180 congratulations you're going to be disappointed because your expectation was wrong what When marriage is intended to be something transcendent, not about me, but about we in a one flesh union glorifying God, then your desire is no longer to seek the praise for self, to be encouraged by another, but to switch our perspective and our expectation to go about doing the exact opposite. Love is the daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. How minor can our perceived offenses be? Oh, oh, oh let me demonstrate. If you are in the room with me and you're just trying to eat a protein bar, this thing right at the crinkle, oh, Ah, and when I am petty and trivial and self-centered, excuse me, do you mind with the crinkles over there? Are you going to get that package open anytime soon? I think I'm in a movie theater sitting behind the guy who just can't stop the crinkling. Can you stop it already? I'm actually that petty. Why? Because I've forgotten what love is. I have forgotten that it is a sacrificial self-giving, not self Serving expectation, I love because I've been loved. Love is being honest and approachable in times of misunderstanding, and those are a lot of times, and being more committed to unity than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. Would you yell at a body part for a perceived light? Of course not. You take care of the body part. You would love it and nurture it. Why? Because it's you. That's what marriage is. It is a one flesh union. Why would I need to be right? Why would I want to get upset at and yell at and perhaps be mean to my own flesh only when I'm forgetting What marriage is. Number five from Paul Tripp. Love is a daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure, and to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame. Number six. Love means being willing when confronted by your spouse to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. Number seven, love is being unwilling to do what is wrong when you have been wronged, but to look for concrete and specific ways to overcome evil with good. How hard is that? It's impossible when you expected marriage to be about who. Wow when marriage is about the other, and my expectation for self is about as low as it can go, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to be slighted. I am not going to be angry. I am not going to be retaliatory. Love is being a good student of your spouse, looking for his physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden, support him as he carries it, or encourage him along the way. You'll only want do that, and this is for both genders, when you have the right expectation and the right understanding of marriage. Number nine, love means being willing to invest the time necessary to discuss, examine, and understand the problems that you face as a couple, not her problem, my problem, together staying on task until the problem is removed or you have agreed upon a strategy or response. Number Ten, love is always being willing to ask for forgiveness and being committed to grant forgiveness when it is requested. Number eleven, love is recognizing the high value of trust in marriage and being faithful to your promises and true to your word. Number twelve, love is speaking kindly and gently, even in moments of disagreement, refusing to attack your spouse's character or assault his or her intelligence if you have been sinning against your spouse because of your unbiblical expectations, it is time to say, I am sorry, dear, will you forgive me, honey? And then stop acting like that. Start acting like Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for sin. The only way you will desire to do those two things is by staring at Jesus with unveiled face. Look at the diamond of heaven who not only looks upon this sinful planet, he entered our world taking on human flesh to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death. He, when I am humbled by what Jesus Christ, the humble one who should have been praised and exalted on this planet but died for this world, only then will I desire to repent and live like Him.
1: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M truthbetoldradio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa canchoa the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
4: Wonderful words? This is Ken Hand, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's word. When you think of marbles of design, earthworms probably don't come to mind. But these worms in their millions help make plant life possible. They swallow huge amounts of soil and digest nutrients from it. This process helps to aerate, fertilize, and loosen up the soil for plants. And earthworms help to decompose litter from trees in the fall. They drag around 90% of these fallen leaves into the soil so the nutrients can be reused to grow new leaves in the spring. In the earthworm, God has provided earth with an efficient system of enriching the soil. Even the lowly worm proclaims the Creator's glory.
5: Discover more about God's incredible design when you visit AnswersRadio.com. There's more that proclaims the Creator's glory. Go
0: to AnswersRadio.com. The Shack, a novel by William Paul Young, has sold over 20 million copies and has been made into a feature film. It's about a man whose daughter was murdered, leading him to ask why a loving God would allow such evil. He goes back to the place where she died and meets God as a woman who goes by Papa, the Holy Spirit, also a woman, and Young's version of Jesus. Though The Shack is fiction, it teaches unbiblical ideas Young said he believes about God. He believes God the Father was crucified with Jesus, a heresy called patripassianism that was condemned in the third century. The Son of God was crucified on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God the Father. Young's version of Jesus says that he's the best way to have a relationship with God, but the Bible says he's the only way to God. Young's Jesus teaches that God submits to us. Psalm 2 says God laughs at such pride and holds them in derision. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God submits to no one, but we are to submit to him. Young's God says that he places no expectations on us, but God clearly commands that we turn from our sin and obey his son, Jesus. Those who do have eternal life, those who don't, are under his wrath. Young's God says that all people are his children whom he loves, but the Bible says only those in Christ are his adopted sons and daughters. Those who do not believe are children of wrath, and their father is the devil. The shack contains a false gospel and teaches only wrong things about God. We know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error when we understand the text.
4: Koalas, living on poison? This is Kent Ham, inviting you to visit our full-size ark near Cincinnati, Ohio. One of the most famous Australian creatures is the koala an animal that lives on toxic eucalyptus leaves. Koalas can eat them where most other animals can't because they can break down the toxin. There are over several hundred eucalyptus species. Koalas only eat from a small number of them, and an individual koala will only eat from just a few of those. Some leaves are too poisonous, even for a koala, but their noses are sensitive enough to tell which leaves are fine. You know, in God's perfect creation, toxic trees didn't exist. The God designed koalas with the ability to adapt their diet after the fall.
5: Want to know more about God's incredible design in nature? Visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. In this segment of our study of the book of Genesis, we're going to consider an episode that takes place in the life of of Jacob. It's one of those moments in a man's personal history that is pivotal for not only his future, but for the whole future of the nation of Israel and for the Christian world. One of the things I find when I look back at the uh, portraits of the heroes of the Old Testament is that they tend to be, for us, bigger than life, epic heroes, epic uh, heroes, Beyond our comprehension. When I think for a minute of David, for example, of his of his strength, of his of his uh, brilliance as an organizer, an administrator, and as a as a military strategist, we think of a man who takes a third-rate nation and extends the boundaries from Dan to Beer uh, and turns that tiny little nation in the Fertile Crescent into a major world power in the ancient world. Couple that with his artistic gifts, and we say, how could I ever be like David? or even Abraham, whom we've already studied in this series in Genesis, a man who was called a friend of God, the father of all the faithful. What God asked him to do in his old age, to leave everything that was precious to him, all his security in his homeland, to venture out into a place where he knew not where he was going, just on the basis of a promise of a strange God. That kind of faith, Uh, is in a sense almost unreal to me. I can't really identify But when we look at Jacob, here's a figure that I think we can all identify with. He is real. He's flesh and blood. He's a kind of man like we are. Uh, I remember the words of of the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, who, when everybody else was complaining about the corruption that had grasped 19th century European culture and were bemoaning Mm -hmm the loss of excellence in the arts and in religion and in science that had set in, in a kind of cultural malaise in Europe, Kierkegaard made the statement, he said, my complaint is not that this age is wicked or decadent, is that our age is paltry. It lacks passion. Then he said, that's what drives me to go back to the Old Testament, to read about real people, people of flesh and blood. He said, look at the characters in the Old Testament. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they commit adultery. They're real. They're not plastic saints I can identify. Well, if there's any character in the Old Testament that would embody all of those vices, it would be this man, Jacob. He was a man whose very name, Jacob, means supplanter because his life was basically a life of dishonesty, a life of fraud. It was a man who was destined to participate in one of the most rich inheritances in all of human history, and he wasn't satisfied with it. He had to connive and, uh, in a fraudulent way, virtually steal his brother's portion of the birthright, and of the inheritance. And his life is a life of sheer corruption from beginning to end. Well, we pick up the story of Jacob in the 28th chapter of Genesis in, as I said, this moment of crisis that takes place in his life. His father had called him to himself and he said, Son, I want you to carry on the faith of my father Abraham and to keep it pure of course, at this point, Jacob had no interest whatsoever in the covenant promises that were given to Abraham. But he said, I don't want you intermarrying with the pagans here in this Canaanite culture. I'm going to send you back to our homeland. I want you to go there and find a wife. And so Jacob departs to go back to Mesopotamia to find himself a wife. And we read here in the 28th chapter, beginning at verse 10, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. Now, this little editorial description of how it is that Jacob came to stop at this particular place, I think, has some significance. The point the author is making is that there was no prearranged spot for Jacob to stop in the midst of his journey.
0: It appears, at least
5: on the surface, to be strictly fortuitous, strictly by accident that he happened to come to this particular place, the name of which isn't even mentioned in antiquity. It just was marked by the fact that in his travels, he reached the place as far as he could move until the sun had gone down. And once the sun had gone down, it was time for Jacob to stop his journey, so he pitches his tent, or he doesn't even have a tent, he he stops his uh, livestock And he goes over and he finds a stone. And there in the middle of nowhere, he lies down and he goes to sleep. Well, what happens? In a very real sense, it changes the course of human history. He took one of the stones, put it under his head, and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. When I was a little child, we would go to vacation Bible school in the church, and they would teach us songs in in, in this uh, environment. And one of the songs that we used to sing had come from... Uh, the Annals of Negro Spirituals, and you remember the song. What was the name of the song, Jim? Uh, oh. Jacob's, Jacob's Ladder. Huh? And we would sing that over and over again. We are climbing Jacob's Ladder. You know, every round goes higher, higher. Soldiers of the Cross. I never really understood what the theme of that song was. I just liked the melody, and I liked the words. They were simple, and we used to enjoy singing it. But here is the historical context out of which the Negro spiritualist was writing. This event in Jacob's life where he goes to sleep and in the night vision, he has a dream and he sees a ladder, or in the Hebrew, a staircase that goes from the earth to heaven. Now, that ladder is indicating a point of contact a way of passing over from this world to the world of transcendence, to the level where God exists. I want to just say something here parenthetically, that in our modern culture, in terms of what has happened in the history of theoretical thought in the last 200 years we are living in the age of the greatest degree of skepticism about man's ability to ever learn or know anything beyond the confines' terrestrial world. But we have been told by secular philosophers and by the skeptics that our reason or our scientific inquiry or any legitimate means of knowledge is locked in to this time, and to this place. In fact, that's the very meaning of secularism. What the term secularism comes from is the Latin word "seculum," which means this time, this age. And behind it is the fundamental philosophy that man must live out his day in the here and now. There is an unbridgeable chasm between time and eternity, between this world and the world of God. If there is a God, he is utterly unknowable. There's no way that we can bridge the gap from earth to heaven. In fact, secular man is divided between skepticism and agnosticism. The skeptic says there is nothing up here. There is no level of transcendence. There is no eternal dimension. There's only the here and the now. You hear it even in your commercials on television. You only go through life once, so you might as well do it with gusto. When you're dead, you're dead. Here and down here are the absolute limits of finite human existence. I said the skeptics deny this altogether. The other group are agnostics who said maybe there is something out there, but there's no way we can ever get in touch with it. There's no way to bridge the gap between this world and the world out there. We see the polls, we read the reports, and they tell us that still 95% of the masses of people in this nation believe in some kind of God. A nameless God, usually, a faceless God, sort of a supreme being or a higher power or something greater than yourself. But life is lived on this planet as if there were no God. And we've mentioned that earlier in this series, that we experience a sense still of a kind of theoretical atheism, or excuse me, theoretical theism, but a practical atheism. And that's tied into a very important reality that is part of daily life in our culture. Modern man lives in an environment where he senses a profound absence of God we are not in tune to the everyday awareness of the presence of a living God even people who believe in God tend to view God as remote distantly removed from where we are right now and sometimes we're frustrated when we read the Bible because as we read the Bible, particularly as we read in, in quick succession the books of the Old Testament following a Bible study path outline or something like that, well, we often forget that literally hundreds and hundreds of years of history are compressed in those books. They, they are telescoped together. And we forget that centuries are taking place between Abraham and David and between David and Amos and between Amos and Jesus. It all seems like it all sort of happened at the same time. And we sometimes get an impression that in Old Testament biblical history, God was popping up in burning bushes every other Wednesday. And so that ancient man had this keen sense of the immediate presence and awareness of God. But that's not the case. Certainly, Jacob had sat around the the campfires and heard the stories that his father and grandfather had told him about their extraordinary moments of encounter with God. But Jacob's life was like a 20th century man's life. He had never seen God. There was no burning bush for Jacob. There was no of plow for Jacob. No voices coming out of the sky. He had a profound sense of the absence of God. He heard stories about God. He was instructed in theology and in biblical history. But a personal encounter with a transcendent God was utterly foreign to him, just as it is for the vast majority of people who are living in our nation today. That's why this night, this experience, was so devastating to the man. Again, it was just a dream. In that dream, he saw the bridge from the transcendent realm to this world between heaven and earth, and he saw that ladder there. And what did he see on the ladder? He saw the angels of God moving up and down, having access, transporting themselves between the heavenly dimension. And the earthly dimension He saw in his dream What was invisible to him In his earthly life Now Read about this latter And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament There's not a mention of it In fact I talked to a a New Testament scholar An Armenian scholar just this past week and I asked him about Jacob's Ladder, and the first thing he said was, oh, yes, that's a hop <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's not quite a hop What's a hop Well, it's a technical term in theology or in biblical studies. The full phrase is hop pox legomena, which means a word or a phrase or a concept that occurs only once in the Bible. And as soon as I mentioned Jacob's ladder to this scholar, he said, Oh, yes, it's a hot box. I said, No, it isn't a hot box because it occurs a second time. And he said, Oh, yes, it is, didn't it? But not until centuries pass. And we get into the New Testament, into the very beginning moments of the gospel according to St. John. You recall. Well, the disciples had met Jesus, and they were thrilled because they were convinced that they had found the Messiah. And they go out, and Peter calls calls other friends, and Andrew, and and James, and John, the first group of disciples gather together. And then Philip, who's one of the first of the disciples, goes and searches for his friend, whose name was Nathaniel. And everybody's all excited because they think they found the Messiah. So Philip runs and tells Nathaniel, he said, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel wouldn't buy it. He was from Missouri. He said, you found the Messiah? Where did you find the Messiah? Where's he from?